Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast. Just want to remind everyone to go check out our merch store. We are still partnering with Bob Dolgan. Um, all proceeds for this specific one is going to the Piping Clover Project. And so if you can, go ahead and go check out the merch. And if you're plevin' it, you definitely should. And with that, let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. I'm Brittany, and I'm joined today with two of my really good friends. I'm CJ. And I'm Jack. Yeah, we're here with Jack this week. You remember our good friend Jack Cross? Matt actually couldn't be here this week. He's moving into school, so he's going back to grad school. So Matt, when you're listening to this, hello, how you doing? But it's just 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 my friends this week. Who doesn't love, love friends? I love my friends. All um, I need is friends. I'm I'm really expecting I'm expecting this episode to go for a very long time yeah. uh, because all of us like to talk a lot and we talk what? a lot regularly. We've never just talked about conservation things for six hours in a car before. Never. <laughs> no, not the three of us. No, that was a different three people. <laughs> that was a different three people. Um, I feel like the two of you have driven to Ohio all the way to Columbus with me uh, yeah. in a day and back. It's fine. 12 hours. We had lots to talk about. Yeah, we had nothing to say. Um, anyway, let's try and do this in less than an hour. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> good luck with that. Good luck. Brittany, how are you this week? I'm doing pretty good. I, this past week, got to go to Tennessee um, and see some family, got to see some animals and do some cool stuff. So it was really great. It was great to see family. I love them. So yeah. How, what about you, CJ? How are you doing? I'm actually pretty good. Um, as Brittany can see and our patrons can see, um, Jack and I are recording on the same computer, same mic, because now we live together and they were roommates. Woo! So we we're we're moving we're hanging out now because we're recording together and we're we're roommates now, which is very exciting. Uh, so that's what I was doing this week because I was moving. <laughs> Jack, how's your week been? Um, not too bad. I'm off work for actually just today. I'm back from work tomorrow, so I'm uh this weekend's a nice low load weekend, which is nice. We love that. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, the apartments it's really coming together a lot in the last few days. It looks nice. Yeah, Brittany. Ah. Next time you're in Chicago, you gotta come. I will say my favorite part of your entire apartment is your little hut thing. The nook? The oh, nook. yeah. Right behind Thank us? You can see the yeah. nook right behind us. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favorite. Yeah. We, we do love our nook. So let's move out of our outro and into our first segment. Brittany, you want to you wanna bring us into our first segment? What's our, what's our first segment called, Brittany? Our first segment is going to be our creature feature. So our creature feature this week is going to send us to Sub-Saharan Africa. The animal that brings us all the way there is going to be the African pixie frog. And so these guys are really cool. So like I said, they're from the Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, these guys are pretty extreme. 
They can weigh up to about, be about two pounds. They are the second largest frog in the world. But what makes them so fitting for this episode is that these guys actually build cocoons. So they build a little cocoon with their own dead skin. So what they'll do is that they will burrow underground and build this cocoon to wait 10 to 12 months to reemerge. And the reason why they do this is because the specific area has extreme, extreme temperatures. So it can get up to 100 degrees, um, all the way down to below zero. And so these guys try to figure out how to survive in those extreme temperatures, have these really cool adaptation where they will build this cocoon around themselves and uh, pretty much hibernate for 10 to 12 months. So what are your guys' thoughts about this pretty special adapted frog? I, I love the pixie frogs just because they are um, like the one of the largest species of frogs in Africa. And they their name pixie implies that they're really small, but they're really, really big. And um, so the scientific name of the uh, African the pixie frog, or the uh, African bullfrog, is Pixocephalus aspersus. And that genus name, uh, Pixocephalus, means round box head. Which I think is really interesting, because if you look at their heads, it, it kind of looks like a rounded off cube. It's a really, they're really cute frogs. The males get huge compared to the females. And in addition to making these cool cocoons that Brittany mentioned, they will also, the males, the, the dads are really good dads, they will literally dig trenches to get their lots of tadpoles from pool to pool. They're very cool. Oh, that's really cute, actually. <laughs> Thanks for this okay. fun future feature, Brittany. Anytime. All right. And with that, we're going to head out of our creature feature of the featuring of the creatures and into nature in the news. <laughs> All right, and uh, with our first creature feature of the week, I'm going to talk about something that is, uh, again, related to the science behind some animals. Uh, my article comes from phys.org, and it has to do with the first genetic sequencing of a Brazilian pit viper is completed. So when it comes to genome sequencing, it just helps give a lot of uh, research, a lot of information about animals based on the actual like genes and the breakdown and how to like better specify these animals, how to better classify these animals. And in the case of this species, how to better like treat the bites that uh, come from this venomous pit viper species. So a, a group of uh, researchers from uh, the Butantan Institute have completed the first sequencing of Brazilian snake's genome, the species being the Jararaca, or um, scientific name Bothrops Jararaca. Very right on the money with that scientific name and common name. So the sequencing of this genome started in 2013 and has recently finished. And um, like I said, this species uh, accounts for lots of uh, a good amount of bites of uh, from venomous snakes in Brazil. And this helps like um, this helps researchers like better pinpoint the specific kinds of toxins used in the venom of the species, along with other closely related species. So when it comes to um, reptiles that have had their genome sequenced, the jararaca now joins other snakes such as like the king cobra, the Burmese python. Uh, the corn snake and uh, multiple, um, interestingly enough, multiple sea snakes, which is very interesting. And it joins other um, reptiles in general, like the American alligator, Chinese alligator, saltwater crocodile, and Indian gharial. And like I said, it just helps like pinpoint lots of uh, specific toxins and different proteins used within the venom of this species. Wow, that's super cool. I think that's like really fascinating. Just all of all of your scientific facts are always great. So 
for our next Nature in the News, it's going to actually come from NBC News. And the title reads, Parts of Lake Tahoe Closed After Chipmunks Test Positive for the Plague. And so the plague actually is still around. It is just mostly commonly more found in rodents. And so the article states that no humans were exposed to these chipmunks, but that, that there were chipmunks around Lake Tahoe that were tested positive for the plague. And so they like closed everything down and were waiting until that following Friday to um, reopen. The article pretty much just was stating that there were positive cases and for people to really be careful and make sure that, you know, if there, if by some chance somebody had been exposed, they would, they would have like a fever or nausea or weakness, um, as well as their, like their pets, if their pets had gotten contact. But according to the article, no one had been exposed or affected or anything like that. So then I'll, they're just kind of waiting it out. The plague isn't as like deadly as it once was because, you know, antibiotics are a thing and things like that, especially if it's caught early enough. But yeah, it's a little nerve wracking to know that, you know, just random plague hanging out in Lake Tahoe. That's honestly wild. Like while you were kind of sharing that, I was just like doing some thinking on like how they would even go about testing that. You know, that's that's so wild. And I mean, at least like the researchers caught it, right? That's wild. You know, good on good on scientists. We're really scientists are really killing it this week. And that definitely ties into my current event as well. My current event comes from the Smithsonian magazine, and it's titled Hyenas Hoarded Thousands of Human and Other Animal Bones in Saudi Arabian Lava Tube. So archaeologists in northwestern Saudi Arabia have recently unearthed a massive collection of bones likely stockpiled by striped hyenas over the past 7,000 years. Found in the Um Jirsen lava tube systems, a sprawling network of tunnels formed by volcanic activity, the hundreds of thousands of bones belonging to at least 14 different kinds of animals, from cattle and goats and horses to camels and rodents and even humans, these the researchers' findings are newly published in the Journal of Archaeological and Anthropological Sciences. Lead author Matthew Stewart, a zoo archaeologist at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Germany, told uh, you know news teams that their their team identified hyenas as the culprits after analyzing the cuts, bites, and digestion marks found on the bones. Striped hyena are a very avid accumulator of bones, uh, Stewart said. And researchers have been investigating the site, which is located in the country's Harat Kiabar lava field since 2007. But they only recently ventured into the cavern's depths a few months ago. For this study, the team analyzed almost 2,000 bones and teeth recovered from the lava tube, and radiocarbon dating of a small number of these samples found that they ranged in age from about 500 years to almost 7,000 years ago, suggesting a long use of the lava tube system by the carnivores. This study adds that carnivores engage in both hunting and scavenging activities, killing some animals while simply hoarding the remains of others. And a key sign that hyenas responsible for this huge pile of bones was the presence of a human skull fragment. The mammals are notorious for rummaging through grave sites. 
Stewart told uh, news reporters again that the most surprising thing about this really just comes down to how well-preserved all these bones and materials are and how much material there are, there is, given that in Saudi there's no faunal remains, really. Like, there's really not any, you know, buried human remains, which is, you know, wild. He adds that Umjirsan and other similar sites in the region are likely to hold valuable insights into the ecologies and environments of the Holocene Arabia. So this study is really just the tip of the iceberg. So again, scientists just really killing it this past couple of weeks. Or uh, tip of the lava tube, if you may. Very good, Jack. Very good. <laughs> it just gives me more reasons why to be very spooked of hyenas, just mm -hmm. in general. Yeah, I like hyenas a lot, but they're definitely misrepresented. But also, this is kind of spooky. <laughs> I think very it's much misrepresented, but also like when I went to Kenya, yeah. I like saw one in real life and I was spooked. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I was spooked. That's fair. <laughs> um, but just as much as I was spooked at, with the lions and and everything else. <laughs> and everything else. Um, yeah. Well, if I may say something about the uh, the hyenas and lava tubes, totally. it's kind of amazing that hyenas have pretty much been archaeologists for this region and have an entire geo collection. They are able to go time period by time period through this collection. Yeah. And thanks to hyenas, now we have a history of like the faunal remains of the animals all the way dating back to, I think, Seagis of the Holocene. Yeah, which is which wild. For this area is amazing. And good on those hyenas for honestly being better archaeologists than ancient peoples in this area. Yeah. <laughs> so hyenas are just top tier scientists is what we're That's what we've learned. That's what we've learned. Yes. Human scientists mm. killing it. Hyena scientists, even better. Yep. <laughs> Literally killing it. Literally killing it. <laughs> that was good. All right. Well, those are some awesome current events. And with that, we're going to jump on in to the main squeeze, the main topic of today. So have you guys ever wondered how animals survive extreme environments from extreme temperatures to just extreme terrain? Animals have the ability to really adapt to some really extreme environments. But how does that work? How are they able to make that work? Um, and so today we're going to kind of jump in and, and talk about some pretty amazing animals that have really got some really great adaptations um, to be able to survive their extreme environments. Yeah, I think that some of the animals that we got picked out for today are really exciting. So I think this will be a fun episode. Um, our first animal we're going to kind of jump into is going to um, actually be the fennec fox which um, they're pretty popular. They're really adorable. They actually are from uh, Northern Africa, and which is a really important kind of part of why they need adap their adaptations. Um, and that's because uh, the, the region that they're from are actually, temperatures can get really, really hot. Um, they can, on average, they're in the high 80s, high 90s, but they'll get well over 100 degrees. And so in order to kind of combat that, um, fennec foxes kind of have these really big ears that uh, with like thousands of uh, blood vessels that help them actually cool down. That's not the only reason 
for how big and how cool their ears are, there actually serves like dual purposes. So on top of being able to have so many blood vessels in the ear to keep them cool down, it actually helps them listen for the bugs and the insects that they eat every single day. So they're able, because their ears are so big, they're actually able to hear pretty far down and they're actually able to pinpoint where their bug is and where that next meal is going to come. But their ears aren't their only adaptations that they have. They actually have um, fur on their paws to help their little their little beanies, their little pads not get burnt, um, which is really cute. And just their coloration in general, they're like a light tan and they're going to live more on like sandy areas and they're able to really camouflage into their environment around them. So they're, they're pretty cute. Um, and just a really great representation of some really cool adaptations that these animals are able to have uh, to survive their extreme, their extreme environment. From one extreme to another, we're jumping from the Sahara in Africa to the Arctic Circle um, with my first example of some animal environment adaptations. We're talking about the biggest carnivore on the planet that walks on land at least. Adult males can weigh, you know, over a thousand pounds. They can be almost nine feet tall. They are very large carnivores. And carnivores in the Arctic Circle, what do you, CJ, what, what? Talking about the polar bear, silly. Talking about the polar bear. <laughs> so polar bears are basically designed to exist as the top predator in their ecosystem. Their giant size helps them break the ice. Uh, both when they're meeting new people and to catch their prey, they use it to kind of press down on the ice, crack it, and grab a seal right from underneath them. Polar bears, like I said, they, they're pretty hefty animals. Males can weigh, you know, over 1,000 pounds. Females can weigh over 500, 600 pounds. They're very big bears. And the reason they're so big is because they do have a layer of blubber, just like other animals that live in that area. So seals have that layer of blubber, walruses have that layer of blubber, a lot of whales have that layer of blubber, and polar bears do as well. Another really awesome adaptation for their environment the polar bear has is their claws. Their claws are, are, are really interestingly adapted compared to other bears. If you look at the claws of like a Kodiak bear, a brown bear, or a sloth bear, they have these really like long and kind of like almost like scythe-shaped claws, while polar bears are very like short and like hooked. And the reason for that is they almost act as like a fishing hook, so that way when they grip onto the seals from the water, they can pull them up without slipping out. They also kind of act as like snowshoes, so they don't slide around on the ice. They can just like put their paws in, and the, their you know claws help them stick into the ice. So with all of these adaptations, and more that I'm going to get to in just a bit. You have to kind of remember that polar bears spend their entire lives living in that Arctic Circle. It gets so unbelievably cold. There's like days where there's no sunlight. There's days where there's no darkness. And polar bears really are kind of the masters of that environment. Now, when you think of the Arctic, you probably think of snow, right? And when you think of snow, you think of this beautiful like white, you know, tundra. And polar bear are the perfect fit for that. But their fur actually is not even white. Their fur is clear. But you're like, CJ, what are you talking about? I can see a polar bear. It's not clear. Ah, yes, you're correct. And here's why. <laughs> so the way the sun refracts through their clear fur, it actually refracts as white. And 
it barely even refracts too because most of the light is actually absorbed by their black skin. So polar bears are not white. They have clear fur with black skin. Even more interesting, <laughs> their fur is actually hollow. So sometimes if you go to like a zoo or you go to a facility that houses polar bears, you might see that there's some like green in their fur. You're like, what the heck is that? Well, it's actually algae because they're in the water so much. Algae gets in the little holes of their hair and grows there. So they look green. Sometimes when they're rolling in the dirt, they'll look brown because dirt just gets into their hair. It's really, really interesting, their adaptations. And that hollow hair, again, acts as a, like an insulator, keeping heat close to their body to keep them warm. They are perfectly adapted to be the ideal carnivore for their environment. There's really not a better Arctic predator, on land anyway, than the polar bear. As we all know, we're not going to disrespect orcas by saying polar bears are better than them. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right, Jack, are you ready? Yeah, of course. So our next species we're going to talk about when it comes to animal adaptations is the kangaroo rat. More specifically, just so I can nail down a single species, we're going to be talking about the Merriam's kangaroo rat. Uh, they're found in the upper and lower Sonoran life zones of the southwest United States in like areas like the Mojave Desert, Sonoran Desert. And life zones probably just meaning like some areas of these deserts are legitimately uninhabitable. Uh, so the kangaroo rats, one of its most specific adaptations uh, involves its kidneys. And with these animals living in such a dry, arid region, there's really not a lot of water available to them, right? So their kidneys are actually evolved to have much longer loops of Henle, which the loops of Henle is a loop within, a, within one nephron within a kidney, and each kidney has like a bajillion nephrons, or a lot of them. I don't know. Can I, can I request that you explain what all of that means? Yeah, I'm going to. I'm okay, working, yeah, because I don't know. I'm working on it. So, um, <laughs> so as we all know, all animals pee. And all animals pee, and their bullet is filtered using kidneys. Kidneys are organs within the body that usually look like beans. And within the uh, kidney, there are different things called a nephron, which is a specific unit within the kidney that filters blood. So blood flows in through the uh, in through the nephron through the artery. So it flows into a part of the uh, the nephron called the glomerulus. Through capillary action, lots of things are sucked out of the uh, the blood, such as like liquid waste, solids that the body doesn't want in it. And then um, that goes through something called the loop of Henle, where the loop of Henle's job is to retain water back into the blood. So when when blood goes through the capillaries of the around the glomerulus, bad stuff is pulled out with the water, and the loop of Henle's job is to get the water back into the blood so animals don't lose unnecessary water. So when it comes to the loop of Henle, the longer loop of Henle you have, the more water your body can reabsorb through that process. And kangaroo rats have such a long loop of Henle that their uh, urine can be twice as concentrated as a regular rat and up to five times as concentrated as, as human urine. So these, uh, these kangaroo rats are really, really good at uh, maintaining uh, their water levels and their hydration levels without having to sacrifice or find water and uh, that they drink because you know everyone should be doing a hydrate not a dihydrate these animals don't need to do a hydrate in order to not do a dihydrate so um a very specific research project that i found in an article said that uh kangaroo rats when put on a solids only diet over the course of two months their body um weight was virtually unchanged where in contrast within 20 days on the same diet so literally like a third of the time 
uh, regular like lab rats lost about 50% of their body weight, mostly due to water loss, which seems like kind of severe dehydration for the sake of the study to these rats. But still, that's a scientific study with rats for you. So it basically shows that these rats are super efficient at um, maintaining their hydration levels to the point where they can they have very very concentrated urine, which is very which is a good necessity if you live in such a desert like climate. So in conclusion, one of the main desert adaptations of the kangaroo rat, specifically the Merriam's kangaroo rat, is their e extremely efficient kidneys that aid in water retention to keep their blood nice and hydrated that allows them not to lose weight or lose hydration through urine. It's, it's really cool, and it's something that really helps them live in such a dry, arid region of the Sonoran Desert. And again, going from the desert down to somewhere else that's completely different, we are going to the deep sea, the bottoms of the ocean we are headed. Life in the bottom of the ocean is extremely difficult, and so many fish there have crazy adaptations to help them improve their ability to feed and their ability to mate. Right now, we're going to be talking about the deep sea anglerfish, which may not regularly encounter suitable prey so when they do find prey they use their incredibly large mouth and stomach and their long pointy teeth in order to facilitate capturing and swallowing anything that they find they also have a lure like all angler fishes that they use to attract prey the deep sea angler fish's lure is filled with a bacteria that make their own light and using a muscular skin flap the deep sea anglerfish can either hide or reveal its lighted lure. By pulsing the light and moving it back and forth, they successfully attract all kinds of things like crustaceans, other fish, and all other kinds of prey. You may have seen depictions of deep sea anglerfish in, you know, animated classics like Finding Nemo, and that's a pretty like on par, you know, look of what an anglerfish is. They have these really long pointy teeth like I mentioned. They have this massive jaw and that lure is very, very good at doing what it does in attracting prey. But what also it does is attract mates. So the only uh, individuals that fit the description of what I've described so far as a deep sea anglerfish, like I said, that big jaw, that giant size, that lure, you know, these long pointy teeth, that's exclusively female deep sea anglerfish. Females are these large ambush predators, and they have the lighted lures. Males are actually really, really small. They're only about an inch big, and they're not predatory at all. Once they hatch, they spend all of their energy searching for mates, biting onto larger females, and fertilizing their eggs. In many anglerfishes, the male becomes parasitic and never releases from his mates, feeding from her blood and becoming little more than a sperm factory. That, however, is not the case with the deep-sea anglerfish, though. After only a short union, the male releases and seeks out another mate. Even though they form these tight bonds during mating, reproduction occurs via external fertilization. Female releases her eggs into the deep water column, and the male immediately releases the sperm, which it locates and fertilizes eggs. So they're pretty different from other anglerfish, which is really, really interesting, in that regard at least. Deep-sea anglerfish are not eaten by people, and there's no evidence to suggest that people have ever eaten them or have had any negative effects on their populations. They're likely naturally rare, however, any changes to deep sea environments could threaten this really interesting species. So yeah, at the end of the day, deep sea anglerfish are pretty strange, but honestly not as strange as other anglerfish. So while they do have these adaptations that really help them in their environment, 
they could definitely be a lot weirder. So with me being me, our next species is a species of snake. I know my uh, current event had to do with them. Our next species is the uh, the flying snakes from Southeast Asia. So more specifically, my specific species is the paradise flying snake. So the paradise flying snake is found in Southeast Asian countries such as Thailand, Indonesia, uh, specifically like Java, uh, multiple archipelagos around there, Malaysia, Myanmar, the Philippines, and other areas around there. Uh, the paradise flying snake is a arboreal species of snake that is technically considered roofing venomous, not venomous to people just because of what they eat, mostly being small lizards. And um, the main adaptation of uh, these snakes is, if you hear it in their name, they're called the paradise flying snake, which you might think, hey, snakes don't have wings. How could? How is that possible? Well, these snakes have adapted a way to fly or more specifically glide through the air in the words of a Buzz Lightyear, you might consider it falling with style. So these snakes, um, they have figured out a way to flatten out their body, much like a cobra when they hood up, except they flatten out their entire body. When they like jump out of a tree, they will um, form their body into an S-shape. If you know, like cats always land on their feet when they, when they uh, fall off of something. These snakes found a way to, in midair, form their body into an S-shape, flatten out their ribs, much like a cobra's neck, except it's their entire body, and create something that that uh, very closely resembles like the shape of a plane, uh, airplane wing. So they have figured out a way to have air um, glide over and under their body, creating enough lift and enough drag to reduce their angle of fall. In ideal world, they jump at an angle of 60 degrees downward, and they have figured out a way to lower that gliding angle to 15 to 35 degrees much uh, greatly increasing their like distance that they fall or distance that they glide and greatly decreasing the impact of when they hit something. So if they were to glide from tree to tree, they can cover a good amount of distance between glides because with these snakes living in such a tight like jungle area, the ability to glide from tree to tree greatly increases their ability to find prey items, uh, escape predators and find mates and etc. <laughs> Basically, the, the Paradise Flying Snake and other members of this Flying Snake genus have found a way to be, not fight gravity, not fly on their own, but greatly decrease the effects of gravity and greatly increase their ability to get from tree to tree, greatly, which increases their mobility around their habitat greatly without wings, which is very cool. Uh, these snakes being called the Paradise Flying Snake are beautiful. They're great. They're green. They're black. Some species have reds on them. Some species look, they look like living jewels. And they found a way to, to, they've evolved and adapted this incredible ability to get around their habitat and greatly uh, increasing their mobility and their evasion of predators. And it just goes to show the versatility of snakes and versatility of how snakes move. Uh, Chrysopelia paradisi has found a way to both increase its mobility around its habitat and increase its evasion from predators and access to mates and prey items through flattening out its body in a way that it creates that turns its body basically into an airplane wing, which is very, very unique among uh, snakes even, whereas most snakes, if anything, they can flatten out their neck, they flatten out, flatten out their body, they just flatten out their neck, like cobras and false cobras, like false water cobras. In conclusion, snakes are cool. Paradise flying snakes just do movement in a different way that's also very, that's very exciting, honestly, to me. Something that I find really interesting about paradise flying snakes is the fact that there's a whole like brand new style of locomotion that was defined exclusively just for them. So we know about like 
swinging and walking and running. We know snake slithering. And there's a couple different variations on snake slithering. There's like, you know, like snails like inching forward and stuff. But the way that they specifically move their bodies when they're gliding has been like scientifically categorized now as a new form of like movement locomotion, which is absolutely phenomenal. So if you can look up any videos, maybe we can post some kind of GIF uh, on our social meds. We can plug that at the end all about how flying snakes move. It's some super interesting stuff. Brittany, why don't you give us our last animal environment adaptation? Um, so our next animal is gonna bring us to the clip springer. And so these, uh, these guys are really have so many adaptations. Their whole life is just one big adaptation, to be honest, from the shape of their hooves to the way that they go and find food, um, all are just one big adaptation to kind of be able to fit their environment. So, um, we're going to start off, uh, with their hooves. So their hooves are tourniqueted so it's basically like they are standing up on like their quote unquote tippy toes and this helps them be able to stay stable and move around the rocky the rocky mountains of which where of where they live and because they live in such weird terrains um they have to adapt to what they eat so um normally they're gonna their diets are going to consist of shrubs and evergreens and succulents and fruits and flowers and herbs. But like I was saying, they might not always find that because of the terrain that they live in. And so if they can't, they will actually come down off of the mountain to find food, which is weird for them because for a couple of different reasons. One, they're diurnal. So they'll change when they'll, when they're up, they'll change when they're looking for food and when they're going to do all of their foraging to to be able to fit walking down these mountains to 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 find their food they'll also just kind of like wander around and go to place to place and it's all food dependent and it's all like very adaptable and so from the way that they're built to the way that they they forage to the way that they, uh, the times that they're awake, they're all, it is all adaptable based off of where they're actually found, which is pretty weird and pretty neat. They also have some pretty cool, these aren't necessary adaptations, but just cool facts about clip springers. They have like cool um, patches under their eyes that um, they'll rub up um onto their their mate or onto different like things around them um and their mate will actually like nibble off of them and it's pretty pretty adorably cute all right and that's gonna kind of conclude some of the animal adaptations for today obviously there's so many more examples you know there's too many to to get to you can't get to them all but with that let's move on out to our outro Hey, CJ, where can we find you on those social meds? You can find me on social meds on the Instagrams at CJ.Greco. That's CJ.Greco. And for a while, I've been posting, um, you know, a relevant picture. Uh, so last week we talked about some unfortunate animal evolution. So I posted a picture of a koala. 
Um, and this week we're talking about some environmental uh, evolution. So who knows what I'll post? Maybe some fun animals. Honestly, maybe I'll just post um, something else. Who knows? Jack, where can you be found on the social medias? Um, I can also be found on Instagram at jackcross1. That is J-A-C-K underscore C-R-O-S-S underscore the number one. Boom. Brittany, how about you? Where can you be found on the social medias? Funny enough, also on Instagram at the Brittany underscore bunch. T-H-E-B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B-U-N-C-H. And I... Just been posting kind of random things that have been going around, going on around me this week. It'll probably be some Tennessee photos and maybe some cute animal photos that I've taken this week. I love a rhyme when there'll probably be some Tennessee. And so while we're all individually on social media on Instagram, you can find us collectively on Instagram at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. You can also find us on our website at thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. We've got our merch store. We've got Patreon, which shout out to Gabe, who was our first Patreon. Uh, we're so excited. And um, shout out to you. Thanks for being just a great listener and a yeah. supporter. Yeah, we're really excited to have our first Patreon, Gabe Anderley. Thank you so much for supporting us, Gabe. On that same note, we do have a new five-star review. So like we mentioned every single week, if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'll read it out here on the podcast. So Gabe getting a double shout out this week because he left us a review. Actually, the review was left on my birthday, August 10th. So let's read out this review. Quality podcast with quality people. I've been listening to this podcast for months now, and I can't recommend it enough. An array of conservation topics are covered by a knowledgeable and entertaining team. It's clear they work hard to make it an inclusive and inviting space that welcomes curiosity and learning. Some of my favorite episodes are Accessibility in Nature, episode 144, Wild Chicago, episode 209, and Queer Ecology, episode 105. 10 out of 10, I would bird with them, which, by the way, is huge. Gabe works for Georgia Audubon, so Gabe, people will come down to see you soon because I would love to bird with you as well. So that's fantastic. Thank you for all of your support and leaving a review and supporting us on Patreon which all of you can do. So if you if you leave a review and you support us on Patreon, even if you just do one of those two things, you'll get a shout out here on the podcast. Uh, like Brittany mentioned, you can visit our website for you know all of that information. So check it out at thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. Before we kind of wrap up, I do just want to mention, make sure that you share this podcast with a friend. If you can't support us financially, if you're like, I don't want to leave a review, fine. Well, at least share this podcast with a friend. If you share this podcast with a friend, that's how we grow. So thanks for doing that. Brittany, you want to wrap up this episode? And with that, thank you for listening to the Birdie Bunch podcast. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.